Did you know that The Well is recorded at a live event? You are all always invited to attend, especially if you are local to Columbia, South Carolina. Or even better, if you make a trip, give us a shout ahead of time to let us know you are coming. You can find the schedule at Shandon Baptist Church's website at www.shandon.org or click on the link in the episode notes of this podcast. Hello, friend, and welcome, welcome, welcome to The Well Podcast. I'm Amber, and I'm your host. We are bringing you our third season of The Well with this January event. Thank you so much for walking through these with us, for sharing these with your friends. We've had an amazing turnout at our live event in January, and we cannot wait to see the faces that show up next time. As we grow and evolve with The Well at Shandon Baptist, we are making a major scheduling shift this year to a quarterly live event. Our next live event will be at the end of April and then not until September and November. So mark your calendars and start planning your road trip for a wonderful Sunday night of worship and story. This month, we are meeting with one of my favorite people on the planet. She is an educator, a mom of four, proficient in sign language, and has a God-given singing talent that you would be hard-pressed to find the equal of. She's not singing here, though. You'll have to visit our church to hear her vocals live, but I promise it's worth the trip. And to many, she is a wise friend and mentor, and I absolutely adore her. Let's meet Alberta. We're going to start off with just a funny story before we get down to the the good stuff. Um, But we've been friends for a long time, and we're Facebook friends. And if you're Facebook friends with Alberta, then you've seen this too, or if you know her, you've heard this, but um, she recently shared something about her hair, and I'll just let you tell that story um, of this hair journey, and we'll talk about that before we go to the okay. deeply personal all right, stuff. All right, we're going to break the ground here. So, uh, little African-American girls, we um, usually have our hair braided up. And uh, that's just how it is until you get to be a certain age and mama says it's time for you to let your hair out. And that's a big thing for us. And um, either you get the hot comb and it straightens, sisters, yeah? Yeah, yeah, you got that, all right, you got that. The hot comb, you're going to the kitchen and it's gonna be sizzling and you smell your hair, yeah. And it's nice and long until the rain gets it or you're running and it just goes again. So I think we have a picture of the, the night. <laughs> How old are you in that picture? The night before seventh grade, oh. my mom says, "Come into the kitchen." So I'm thinking, "Ooh, she's going to straighten my hair, and it's going to look so good for church." And she did that, <laughs> lopsided, and just oh. So that's me going to school in seventh grade, and. Uh, it took a while for the hair to grow, and then we went ahead and got the chemically pro- You're going to get a little education here if you don't know, sorry. Um, we, we typically straighten our hair, and I remember, you know, as a kid, you know, you're, you've got your hair braided, and you just can't wait till you can let your hair, you watch everybody swinging on the swings, and all the white girls have their hair flowing in the wind, and mine just sits there. And so, <laughs> so I just couldn't wait till we could, you know, get it nice and straight. So probably a couple years after that we got the chemically processed thing and it's kind of a a rite of passage i did it to my girls and we went to this that we went to the salon and i took pictures of them and all that and um i remember my mom told me that my hair was the texture of a brillo pad oh. that's not very complimentary is it 
So my girls went natural before I did, and, and that became the thing was, you know, to go natural and let your, just see what your hair will do. And I could not get past that picture and my mom's words. And so I was, I was really, I was honestly afraid. And I um, also didn't know what people would think. So um, I went to Africa this summer and saw many women of um, beautiful shades and um, hairstyles. And when I came back, I knew I needed to exercise every, every day. And it's just too much. So I thought, well, if I go natural, I bet I can meet my goal to exercise. So my first step was to go to the salon and spend seven hours in the woman's chair as she braided all that hair in there that I purchased, you know, I bought it. <laughs> I bought it. And so, seven, I mean, a day of my life was spent doing that. And um, that was the first time I'd ever had braids. My girls had had them, you know, extensions, but I had never had that done. So that was a big step for me. And... Uh, so after a couple, you know, it goes for like two or three months and then you have to go back because your, your roots are growing and so the braids are like sagging out. So you got to get them all undone and then go put them back in. So I did that like three times and then I finally said, you know what, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, re I'm ready to go ahead and do this. And it was, um, it was scary for me because, uh, you know, by the time I got to that point, my husband is now on staff at Shandon. So, you know, here... Now everybody's, I mean, people are already looking at me, but now, you know, he's the pastor, one of the pastor's wives. So um, it was like unwrapping a present when I did it, because I didn't know it was going to be in there. And then it did this, and I was like, yay, this is not Brillo pad. It's so, beautiful. Thank you. It's, it's still, I mean, I still walk past the mirror and go, who See, is it's that? beautiful. <laughs> so it took me a while, but here we are. Um, and so it's been, a, it's been a journey. Every morning is a, I don't know what it's going to do from day to day. But it's fun. The, the Facebook posts came with process pictures like, yeah. uh, along the way, and that was, yeah. that was yeah. funny. Yeah, I've finally gotten over. I used to take myself too seriously, and I um, still do some. But for me to post that picture was a big deal. Alyssa's back there going, yeah. It's freedom. It's freedom. Yeah. yeah. So um, you mentioned, we'll, we'll go ahead before we go back. You okay. mentioned your husband and your girls. Yes. Can you just tell us a sure. snapshot sure. of who you are? Okay. Um, I'm a mother of um, four children. My oldest will be 29 in August. Um, yeah, August. I know. You remember when she was this little and she wouldn't stop talking. And then there's um, my, my next daughter will be 25, 6. Oh, <laughs> 26. She's here. She's here. Alyssa's here. And then um, Michael will be 19 in... Um, June. And then Andrew will be 16. Uh, yeah. And um, Ed is my husband, and uh, I'm not going to tell you how old he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. No, yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Now we can go back to the beginning. Okay. Where were you born? Bridgeport, Connecticut. All right. And what was home life like? Well, my mom and dad, um, both when they were young, lost their hearing to spinal meningitis. So they are completely deaf. My mom was probably five, and my dad was about 11 months old. So um, my first language is sign language. And um, they both were educators. So um, our world was not about the African-American culture. It was about the deaf culture. Mm. And in fact, I, we, my dad taught at American School for the Deaf. It's a residential school, like our South Carolina School for the Deaf and Blind. And there were little cottages in the back, and we lived in, the, in one of those cottages. So all of my neighbors knew about deafness. So it was just normal. You know, we just kind of hung out, and um, I got to interact with the students, of course, in sign language. And it was just my life. 
Um, and then kindergarten came, and I went off campus to go to um, public kindergarten, and um, that's when I realized, oh, everybody doesn't know sign language, and everybody doesn't. But the Lord was really sweet because my kindergarten teacher, her parents were deaf. So we had like our own little secret language that none of the other little kindergartners had, and it was just, it was so sweet of the Lord to do that for me. Um, yeah. So ease that transition absolutely. a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. Were your parents believers? No, no. We did not go to church. Um, maybe one rare Easter, but um, again, they were deaf. And so, um, first of all, Connecticut is not exactly the Bible Belt. Um, I did find out that my mo- my um, grandmother was a Methodist, and um, but my my mom's mom uh, forced her to sing in the choir, even though she was deaf. Mm. And so my mom just kind of told me she would look at the lady beside her, and if she was singing, then she would kind of move her mouth, and when she closed her mouth, she would stop singing. And she hated it. Yeah. And um, begged her mom to let her quit the choir, and she said, okay, but you have to sit on the front row. And so if she were squirming or anything in front of the whole church, she would call her down. So church was not her favorite place to be. So we might have gone to an Easter service one time. Mm -hmm. We didn't, I don't remember having Bibles or anything like that. We just, it just wasn't my upbringing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you had a sister? I did. Norma you came, yeah, Norma came three years later and um, ruined my life because she was cuter than I was. <laughs> you know, you know how everybody comes in the room and goes, oh, look at the baby. I'm like, look at me. But that's okay. Um, but yes, and um, she knows sign language as well. I probably know it. I, I did it better than her because as the oldest, I had more practice and I was leaned on a little bit more, but my parents were very careful to make sure that we were the children. We were never the adults. We didn't make decisions for them. Anytime that they could have an adult do the translating for any kind of thing, that was, that was their goal. So I truly was the child, um, but I was a more mature child because I had a different yeah. kind of experience. Yeah. Yeah. So when do you remember first hearing about Jesus? Well, um, let me say this. I remember um, in fourth grade, we were on the playground, my hair not swinging and all the other kids <laughs> swinging in the swing. But I remember Gus, I can't think of his last name, but Gus and I were swinging on the swings and it was a beautiful day. And he said, Alberta, do you think there's a God? And I said, I don't know. And we just kept on swinging. And that was my thing. And you remember that. I, I do. Yeah. I remember that very clearly. Um, probably after I became a Christian, it became more uh-huh. important to me. Uh-huh. But um, we moved from Connecticut when I turned 11, and we moved further down south, and we went to Maryland. And um, when we got there, of course, you need to buy a house. So the family was looking for a realtor who could sign. They wanted a realtor who knew sign language, and there was one. And so he showed us around, and the, one of the first things you ask as a parent is, what are the schools like? And so um, John Mark Ennis was his name. His response to him was, oh, the public schools are, are not good. You should put the girls in Riverdale Baptist School. Hmm. Not Christians, no Bibles, no nothing. But they went, and they looked at the school, and they said, okay. So, um, sixth grade, here I go, into a Christian school, my little plaid skirt and my little red little, little tie, and um, I started hearing about 
hell mm-hmm. is what I heard. And I remember being so afraid. I had never heard of hell before. And I cried myself to sleep probably for about a month. Um, and we had chapel every week. And I guess it took me a month to hear the other side of the story, to hear about heaven. And I realized, you know, one of the verses that we all know is John 3:16, but that was new to me. And the fact that God would give his son because he knew I could never be good girl enough to get to heaven. So when that other piece came into my understanding and in my heart, I absolutely said yes. Mm-hmm. I, I want Jesus to stand in my place and give me salvation. So I, I prayed to receive Christ. So I was, it was probably October of my sixth grade year when I um, prayed to receive Christ. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and then years later, I realized the man who preached the chapel service where I got saved was the realtor who invited us to go to Riverdale Baptist School. Incredible, yeah. I mean, how sweet is God? And if if your parents had not been deaf, they might not have, well, they wouldn't have needed a realtor that could sign, but they might not have ended up with a realtor that was a believer who would have then encouraged you to go to this Baptist school and yeah, and pay money. Your life. Yeah, and pay money for this and, yeah. and something they don't even believe in. And yes, it's, it totally changed the trajectory of my life and the family that I have now. It's yeah. amazing. It's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sweet. Yeah. So were you a good girl? I was a rule follower. <laughs> I, was, I was a rule follower. I, will, um, I was blessed to have um, my seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Hurt, her birthday's today, um, her Facebook birthday. And I, I, I told her, I'm gonna tell her when I get home, I talked about you, but she was uh, my teacher and I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know, you know, how to grow as a Christian. And she took me under her wing and um, even took me to her home. Um, I remember playing games with the family. Uh, my, my household was a little different. So it was neat to be under that, um, that umbrella of, oh, this is what a Christian home looks like and this is what you do and how you grow. And so that was a big part of my, my development as a, as a Christian. Um, she discipled me, taught me. Uh, Riverdale Baptist School, the demographics of it is about the demographics of what's in here. And so, um, do you want me to go there? Yeah, okay, you go ready? there. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I don't even know what the percentage black to white was, but again, this is in the 70s, mm-hmm. 80s, and um, I had, you know, we had friends, even in a Christian school, y'all know this, there are people who want to um, serve God, and then there are people who want to do everything to break the rules. And so I was in the group that wanted to serve God. So that kind of made me unpopular, even in a Christian school. Um, I'll never forget, we had a, um, a Bible, we, had, we took Bible and we had a Bible exam. And these guys are over there in the corner and they're talking and they're doing this. And they're, they're sharing the answers to the test before the test. Okay, it's a Bible test. Cheating. Okay, they're cheating. And everybody in the class is seeing this and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> 
So I tattled. Well, of course. And I told, I told the teacher, I said, they're, they're just there in the Bible. And so we got busted. And they, those guys were so mad with me to the point that one of them, even like today, if I had to try to talk to him, he, he won't speak to me. I mean, we had a friend die and we went to the funeral. And I'm like, huh, and he was like, nope. Nope. Wow. So, um, yeah, and you wouldn't think that as, at, a, at a Christian school, but... So you were a rule follower. I, absolutely, 100%. But did you date? Um, well, in eighth grade, dating looked like this. That's my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pass a note, and that was it. But you won't even look at each other. I, yeah, yeah, no, just walked in the hallway. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, come my freshman year... Uh, as an algebra class, and again, there's not, a, in the 80s, interracial dating was like, <gasps> so I had very few choices. Um, and then when it came down to men that were going to be uh, godly men and lead me in the way I wanted to, the pool got even smaller. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, was, um, there was a fella in my algebra class who was a senior, it should have been a clue that a senior was in a freshman algebra class. <laughs> <laughs> but he was African-American. I know, why is you in here? Um, <laughs> he was African-American. He was um, a big leader in our youth group. And, um, and he, uh, so I'm totally like, you know, babe in the woods, like don't know anything. And I go into the class and he goes, he winked at you. He winked at me, and I'm like, what is he doing? <laughs> what is this? And that, and that guy played with my mind like all through high school. I mean, we never really dated, dated. And um, so that was that, was that experience. Um, I did have a guy that um, did not go to our school. He was a public school, but he was into our youth group and just a great guy. And we dated and... Um, he was a year older than I was, and he went to the Marines. And I remember driving, a couple of us driving him down to Paris Island and um, dropping him off. And um, the following year, I was going to go away to college. And uh, he's like trying to give me a ring. And I'm like, I'm still in high school. You know, I'm no. And he said, well, you can just wear it as a friendship ring. So I'm like, well, OK. <laughs> So I told everybody it was a friendship ring, but apparently in his mind, since I took it, it was an engagement ring. He was going to Paris Island. He was going to Paris Island, and I, and, you know, I felt bad for him, but... <laughs> but he was really sweet, and my mom liked him a lot, because um, he knew sign language. And in fact, when my mom passed away in one of those boxes, she still had Tony Coates' picture in, her, in that box. I was like, well... The so dating was not mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, there was a guy who was white, and we, um, he was growing in his faith, and um, we were attracted to each other, and we were kind of talking to each other. And I remember, he was a wrestler, kind of had a thing. Um, he was a wrestler, and we were on the telephone, and I could hear in the background his dad saying, if you bring that black, blah, 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 blah home. And he was just, just in tears. You know, he was upset. And, and we just like, okay, bye, see you at school, maybe. And you know, that was it. So that was yeah. dating life in the 70s, yeah. 80s, yeah. in a fundamental right. yeah, environment. Yes. And you were a rule follower. And I was a rule follower, absolutely. Staying in your little lane. Yeah. Um, did you go to college after that? I did. Um, 
our senior class had a huge group of kids that wanted to go to Liberty University. The flames. There you go. And I like to be different, but I was like, this is where God wanted me to go. So um, I went down to Liberty in Lynchburg, Virginia, and um, my major was um, psychology at first. And so I, I get down into the dorm, and having deaf parents and being proficient in sign language, people just expect the kids to work in the deaf community. And um, to this day, people say, you mean you don't teach at a deaf school? No, no I don't. Um, so that was kind of the expectation. So I get into my dorm, and lo and behold, my roommate is deaf. Uh. And it's like, I get it, we can communicate, and that's really sweet, but here I'm like on my Let's own, go. and I'm Let's trying go. to, you know, do my own thing. Um, so, and then we had our, um, our, our kids that were from Riverdale, and just so you know, Michael Tate of DC Talk slash Newsboys, we went to high school together. Oh. And um, he was in my class, and he did not Wait, have muscles. There might muscles. be people in the room that you have to tell who DC Talk and well, Newsboys Well, they're are. just going to have to look him up. <laughs> Google that. Google it. Um, he did not have muscles. Well, God's not dead. He, he was in the, um, yes. yeah. But um, he did not have muscles. He was not tall. I don't know what happened to him when he left Liberty. But um, we sang together um, all, through, all through high school. And um, so he came with us to Liberty, too. Okay. So there was a bunch of us there. Yeah. And you... You were really involved yes, at Liberty. Yes, yes. I'll tell you, from my high school experience of not having a lot of um, folks that looked like me, I went into chapel and walked upstairs in the balcony, and there was like a whole bunch of black boys. <laughs> and they saw me, and they're like, ooh, a new black girl. <laughs> so it was, it was weird, though. Um, so it was, a, it was a different environment for me, um, and I don't know. Yeah, so um, what, was, what was the music group that yes, you joined? Yes, yes. Well, first of all, um, I grew, my church that I attended was very much like, well, racially much like Shandon, but very, very, very formal. Like, we didn't, you don't raise your hand. It took me and Brenda Richards about 10 years for us to get to this, and now we're almost to this. Um, that just wasn't what you did. And um, when I got to Liberty, there was a, a group called Black Student Fellowship. It was BSF. We didn't have any sororities or any of that stuff. So um, they had a lot of kids there that it was out of their comfort zone to be at Liberty because their heritage was steeped in the African-American culture. So it helped to have a regular time to meet. Well, I was the opposite. It was a total new culture for me. If you asked my parents, my mom would tell you she is deaf first, she is a woman second, and she also is African-American. So I didn't grow up on gospel music and all of that other stuff. So I started going to this BSF thing, and at first it was a little uncomfortable, but um, I grew to love it. And um, I sang in the Black Student Fellowship Choir, so I learned all about gospel music, and lo and behold, ended up being um, the director. Um, <laughs> from the girl who got called, in school, oh, you think you're white, mm -hmm. to directing the Black Student Fellowship Choir. It was really sweet, and we would go to black churches and sing, and that was my first experience in that. Mm -hmm. um, about sophomore year, um, I'm needing some um, finance. My parents had gone through a divorce, so um, I was needing some scholarship money, 
And, um, you know, the Army will take anybody. So I uh, was in ROTC. Yes, I was in ROTC. And I, we, um, we did an overnight little drill thing. Me and my camo and my all that stuff. I would not go to the bathroom all night because I didn't want any dude popping up on me. I did not shoot my rifle one time that night. I'm like in the corner just holding on going, is this night over? <laughs> and then in the morning we marched back down the mountain. I had to go to the bathroom so bad. So we're marching down the mountain and um, I thought, well, I'll pass my rifle cleaning thing really quickly because I didn't fire it. They made me go back four times to clean it. And I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta go. So that was the ar army experience. And then I did somehow get a scholarship and all I had to do was lose 25 pounds because oh. I did gain the freshman 28 or nine. <laughs> and I had to go to basic to activate my scholarship. And about, and about that time, it was time for um, auditions for the singing teams at, at Liberty. And so I thought, well, let me try. So I tried out and lo and behold, I, I was offered a position on the Sounds of Liberty, which would have been a full ride. Wow. So it was sing <laughs> army. <laughs> sing. I went with the scholarship to sing. Um, my CO was not happy with me, but it's okay. That's all right. Yeah. So, yeah. So how many students were in Sounds of Liberty? Twelve. Okay. And yeah, yeah. I I was the first African American to be on the Sounds of Liberty, which um, that's a big deal. It, it was, and I um, it was scary. Yeah. Um, we sang on TV every um, Sunday when Jerry Falwell would preach, and um, we traveled to um, all over the all over the country, and so. Um, it was me, and it was the first time that um, viewers had seen an African-American in the group and sure. travel. So, but of course, I was warmly received with, within group. us, but there were times when we traveled down south or, um, where um, it was a little uncomfortable, but... Um, Did you feel pressure? Yeah. You know, I wanted my hair to swing in elementary school, so you know, <laughs> I want, you know, there's a look that We had to wear, we had to, we wore matching uniforms. And I'll just say, I'm not built like some people. I'm just not built that way. <laughs> and so it was uncomfortable when we would try to find a, a, a what did we call it? A uniform, wasn't a uniform, whatever, a dress. And we couldn't get that one because Alberta wouldn't be able to fit in it, mm. or she wouldn't look right in it. And um, so that was a little, to be the one that was like, oh, well, do they have bigger girl sizes in this? And you know, it was tough, mm -hmm. but it was, um, it was sweet. Mm -hmm. It was sweet. It, I, I don't think I felt very confident, but like I never ever sang, I was never given a solo, I don't think. But and we've, the people we've completely were amazing. glossed over and just like skipped over the fact that this woman can sing. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's a huge reason that so many people know who you yeah, are yeah. in this church. Yeah. But she can really, really sing. And so um, I wish you could just sing right now. Yeah. But um, you did something else at Liberty. Yes. That was yes. Um, noteworthy. Yeah. There's a picture. Oh. Yeah. 
you were oh. who? What, what um, did you What did you win? So <laughs> nothing. <laughs> no, I did get a few little things. Um, so I'm, I've never been like a beauty pageant person, and you know, at Liberty, it wouldn't. It's not a beauty pageant, and there was no dancing. It was choreography. <laughs> So what, what would happen was um, rising seniors would get um, recommended, girls would get recommended by their um, faculty members and then you had to have a certain GPA and certain, you had to have, be a girl of good character and such, such and such. So there was probably, I don't know, 50, 20 of us. And, um, and there's like this competition, but it's not a beauty pageant. It's not a beauty pageant. But we did learn like a little choreography to some songs and um, they would interview you and um, then it came down to a, a, they narrowed it down, and then it came down to a vote. And um, I was the first African-American to get to be Miss Liberty, which um, my daddy was there. And um, as any time he's where I'm like on, on the stage, he's, his t he's just tearing up. I can see him um, still just teared up as I won this. There was two of us and Dr. Falwell is like asking these questions just like at the beauty pageant or whatever. And um, I'm pretty quick on my feet. And so I, I remember one of the questions was who would you want to interview? And you know, I probably said like, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife or something, you know, not like people would usually say, but it was an honor. And I um, represented our school for a year doing that and then um, passed off my crown. Yeah. But you helped break some yeah. huge racial barriers. Yeah. I mean, even just in, in, a, in a small place, right. but those were big things to Well, do. especially for fundamental Fundamentalists, right. where it, some, Sunday mornings can be some of the most segregated times of the week. Um, you know, we worship this way and we worship this way, and a lot of times they don't mix. And um, I think the reason why people are afraid of other people is because you don't know them. Um, when I met my first deaf blind man, I was petrified. Even though I grew up with deafness, the two of them together kind of set me off balance. But once I got to know him, I was like, oh, this is okay. So the fact that I was able to mix and mingle with people who probably didn't have any other contact with African Americans, that helps us get to know each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, you met your husband in college? Yes, Ed? yes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> okay, so the first time he saw me, I didn't really see him. We were at a, um, a Mike Tate, his sister Linda um, was at Liberty and she was having a little, she went to Riverdale too, so she had a little party at her apartment. And all my little high school buddies, we went and we acted like high school buddies. So, um, and Ed was there and he saw us and he's like, oh, look at the little high schoolers. And then when I showed up in school at Liberty, he's like, oh, I thought you were in high school. I was like, no, I'm in college just like you. So that was our first, like the first time he saw me and thought, yeah, whatever. Um, I, I kind of had a thing for football players. And um, in the cafeteria, I didn't tell you this, I, um, you walk in with your little tray and stuff and there was this football player that I liked and he was sitting at the table, long table, and he's eating his breakfast. And I'm like, hey. And there's this chair sitting there, so I sit in the chair this chair is broken and I fell on my tail 
in my dress, because you couldn't wear pants at Liberty, in my dress in the cafeteria, just sprawled out, tray everywhere, and he keeps eating. He looks over and he's like, and Ed is Uh -uh. from another table, comes up and helps me up, gets me a new chair, and sits me down with that food. Before you think too much of this, though, he told me later, much later, he said, well, I had to do something or I might have laughed at you. <laughs> so that's, that's when we, we met. And um, he was a leader in the Black Student Fellowship, and he was a leader in the choir, and I thought he was cute. And um, I wanted him to ask me out, and he, he just wasn't into it. And finally, he asked me out. But I already had two other dates for that night. <laughs> True story, right, Alyssa? Yeah. Um, there was a guy, I was getting these little notes saying, I like you, but if you knew who I was, you wouldn't go out with me. And I was oh. like, you're probably right, but let me just go ahead and do that. <laughs> I didn't know who it was. So we set up a date for, um, and date, you know, at Liberty meant, <laughs> um, there's, there was a play. So we were gonna go to the play. And then I had a standing date. We had a midnight movie at Liberty where they would play the movie, but there was somebody right there to turn it if there was curse words or anything like that. So it was a <laughs> censored movie. And so I had a standing date at midnight. So the only time I could fit him in was in between the two. <laughs> but he was the one I really wanted to go out with, but I had already set, I mean, already. So, so we went uh, to the movie. So I went to the play, dropped off at campus, I go in. and then here comes Ed gets me, gets me and we go to the, the movie and uh, I'm like that was great thank you bye <laughs> so he walked me to my dorm and then it was time to go to the, see the same movie again with Travis at midnight oh my gosh <laughs> he had no idea but when I told him after we got married he said I wondered why you were in such a hurry I wanted to go so out to eat or something and I was like sorry yeah, yeah. So to keep look at, weigh all your options. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you did eventually get married, and we you did. moved to Columbia. We did uh, after some time. Yes, Ed was a. Um, we had a little girl, and two little girls in um, Virginia, because we stayed at Liberty in the area, and we moved down to Columbia. And Ed was um, on WMHK radio, and so we moved down, and I was. Um, we were looking for a church. And after having had that Black Student Fellowship experience and the black churches, we wanted to check that out first. So we looked at this church and this church and this church. Then we tried this church, didn't care what color they were, just any church. And uh, it got to the point where the girls were like, can we just pick a church? Mm -hmm. And it hap so happened that uh, WMHK was running spots or something, radio spots, and they needed somebody to go to interview Dick Lincoln at Shannon Baptist. Mm -hmm. So Ed got the gig and he came over and he met Dick and he interviewed him and he came home and he said, Alberta, you've got to meet this man. We've got to go to Shannon Baptist. And I was like, that big old church on Forest Drive? Look, I go there. And being the submissive wife that I am, uh, we came and uh, it, Shannon has been a gift to us for the past 20 plus years. Uh, we. I remember we came, we, we were very involved in our little country church and then there was a big dust up and so we had to leave. Mm -hmm. 
And that one year, I think God was sifting our roots, making us ready to come here. So we were um, blessed to come to Shandon. I um, remember crying through the services, just healing from what we had been through. And um, it, was, it was a blessing. And had no idea that just a few short months later we would need our family so badly. Mm. So you want me to just go right into? Yeah. Okay. Um, when I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, I was feeling um, achy and pains. And the doctor said, oh, it's the flu. Well, when I got here, I had another attack. And they told me that it was pericarditis which is the inflammation of the lining of the heart. And uh, so I was on prednisone um, for a long time. And then they would take me off of it and I would still have flare-ups. The, and then um, in the midst of that, I ended up um, pregnant mm. with um, a, a baby boy, um, our first boy. And so I was on prednisone um, doing the trying to manage the pain. And um, we found out he was gonna be a boy, and so we picked out the name James Edward Stewart. James is my dad's name and my granddad's name. And Edward, my Edward is the third. So we gave him the perfect name. And um, uh, James came early in 1996. And as I look at, in this room, I see some people actually held him. And uh, he was healthy. We never went to the, the NICU. We went straight home. And um, seven weeks in, I came back to Bible Study Fellowship because I used to go to BSF. And when I had the baby, I stayed out. And I came back to BSF that day, handed my baby over, and um, went to class. And when I picked him up, they said, he's been a little fussy today. I'm like, oh, OK. And he fussed all day long and all night long. And when Ed got home, I'm like, it's your turn. And I fixed dinner and we just tag teamed. And, I, and later on I went to bed and it was probably about 11 o'clock at night and he came into the bedroom with James and he said, something's wrong. Mm. And he was, he was blue. Mm. So um, I hopped on 911 and thank the Lord Ed knew CPR. So he started CPR on, on, on James. And emergency people came in and um, long story short, we, um, they said we need to take him to the hospital. So we activated the prayer chain. I called Paige Fisher and she called everybody under the sun. And um, a friend came and um, Paige probably came and took the girls. And we went to, I did get to ride in the ambulance, but I had to go in the front. They wouldn't let me be in the back. Okay. And when we got to Lexington Hospital, Robin Vincent was there from Shandon. And um, they came out and they said, if, if he's gonna have a chance at life, we need to send him to Richland. So they put my baby in the life flight and flew him to Richland and Robin and Mark drove us over to um, Richland Hospital. It was a night full of um, trying to save him. And they came out, our pastor was there, our music minister was there, lots of people from the church. And they said, he's, we, we, he's not gonna make it. So we stood in a circle and we prayed, and then we let him go. Mm. And um, that, um, if, if it weren't for the two girls that we had, I probably would have um, jumped right in there with him. Mm. But God had prepared the way, he is so sweet. There was a couple here at church, <clears throat> sorry, who had gone through burying a child, and they were right there with us. And they said, you know, this is what you do, and this is what to be ready for. God had already prepared 
they had gone through it and then now we went through it. And so our church just wrapped us. We we were still new here and they wrapped us up. I remember Lyndon Charles Myers bringing us fried chicken and I just, the body of Christ just Mm -hmm. ministered to us. And your girls were about how old? They were five and three. And um, James was Alyssa's. She was, um, she loved that boy. I'm sure, I'm sure she did. This, um, this is a picture of James and um, we weren't, didn't get it in time to scan it, but this is her precious baby boy. He's the only boy. one that had his eyes open for the picture. Mm-hmm. The Lord knew. <clears throat> so, but when, um, there's more to the story and time is running short. So We're okay. Tell me, okay. We're here, um, I'm here for you. Um, and so, yeah, you want, you want me to tell yeah, your story? Yeah, I will. Um, tell your story. So when we got back from the um, hospital, I get to the front porch and there is a Lexington County Sheriff on my porch step. And yeah, I'm a smart aleck. I said, you're making sure we don't skip town? And he didn't say anything to me. He said, we need to come in. <clears throat> so um, he, we let him in our house and uh, he proceeded to ask us a lot of questions. We had been up all night and I just said goodbye to my son. And he um, asked us all sorts of questions and the girls, um, Paige or somebody brought the girls back to the house and I excused myself so I could go tell them where their brother, I mean her brother was gone. They put caution tape on my baby's um, room and I remember Alyssa wanted his heartbeat bare and so this good girl broke the rules and I snuck under that yellow tape and got my baby that heartbeat bare. <clears throat> and um, I had to tell him what had happened. So we you know, were a little puzzled. Um, we went on with our process of you know, having a ceremony and our church, y'all, we didn't have two pennies to rub together and our church just, I realized like five years ago that I never, I don't think I ever saw a hospital bill. I don't, I don't, God. Um, we didn't have money to, we were advised to bury him at Elmwood because they have a children's garden and the plots, there's no charge. Um, but we didn't have money for a stone and somebody donated the money for his little stone. Um, so just things like that. There was a reception and all these people came and loved on us and my mom and dad we're still not Christians. Mm. And so they saw Jesus as these people would come in and bring bags and bags of food and not ask for any money and take care of it. And they were just like, what is this? Mm. And I prayed that that would be the thing. You know how you pray when somebody doesn't know Christ and you want them to know so badly, you say, whatever it is, Lord. And I thought, okay, maybe it was James, mm. but it wasn't. Um, so after, the, after we buried him, um, the phone rang and it was, and he says, Miss Stewart, this is Sheriff so-and-so. And I said, Ed, they're calling to close our case. And he said, no, ma'am, we need you to bring the girls and come up to the station tomorrow morning. And I'm like, but they're going to, sc- no, no, we need all of you. So we had no idea what was going on. We went up, we get there, they um, put me and the girls in a room and they took Ed to another room. And then we switched. And... Um, when I got home, Luann Osmond said, you need a lawyer. So John and Luann got us a lawyer who would do, do it for free. And we come to find out 
James had a subdural hematoma. And, um, but there was also another cause of death, possibly. So we don't know. So they were trying, anytime a child in South Carolina, I've learned since, who wasn't sick under the age of 18, there is, you know, a question about that. So they began to investigate us, and um, DSS um, was wondering about our kids, if they were safe. And I was like, oh, no, you may not take my girls. Um, they wanted to interview them. We had a psychologist of our own interview them first, so that we had somebody who was not biased. Uh, it was just a whole big thing. So finally it came up, we, um, they came to my door, the police came to my door with a subpoena and they said, Mr. Stewart, this is DSS and we have a court order to interview your children. Gosh. And I called Ed and I said, they're coming. So they took them back to the back and I could not go with them. And DSS lady came back out and she said, Ms. Stewart, these are two of the most well-adjusted children I've ever met. We are closing our case. So we were able to <laughs> keep our kids. Um, and we, to this day, really don't know um, why he died. Um, I don't know if we'll ever know. I don't know if that's ours to know. I do know that James has um, people that he has brought closer to Jesus. One of my friends called and said they were asking about baby James and where did he go and how do you get to heaven and her son prayed to receive Christ. Mm. So that was his first little convert. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's James. And when you go through that, I couldn't pray, mm. but my friends prayed for me. Mm. Um, I did hear songs. But Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And we felt that. Isaiah 40.29 says, He giveth power to the faint, and I was faint. Mm. And to them who have no might, he increases strength. And then Isaiah 40, 40, 31, you know, if you wait on the Lord, you'll mount up on wings like eagle. eagles. It might not be right then, but it comes. So in all of that heartache, you leaned into the Lord Absolutely. the way that you could, and he gave you that strength. But I bet many here are wondering how could God allow the death of a baby? Right, right. Um, and how was your faith yeah. to get to the next day? Yeah. Well, you know, to be really honest, I never asked why me? Why did you take my son? Because in my head was so clear that God gave his only son for me. Mm. And I didn't deserve it. And so I, I never, I mean, I hurt, I missed him, I wanted him. But I never, it's kind of weird, but I never, I thought Jesus died for me. Hmm. And God didn't withhold his son, so he is still good, and I can still trust him. I don't understand this, but I can still trust him. Hmm. Um, well, shortly after jump that, to Andy, uh, you, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we'll go to, we'll go to, um, your next, yeah. you had a couple boys. Yes, yes, two after, boys, yes. After so, James. yes, Michael came along and we held our breath the whole pregnancy. We held our breath the whole infancy, like the girls wouldn't let him cry. They're like, mommy, he's crying, go get him. <laughs> All the time. Um, and then, um, so that was child number three. Um, there were 13 years between top and bottom. And um, I was nearing the end, like feeling I was done. And the Lord said, guess what? 
it, you're not done. And I knew it was gonna be twins. I'm like, Jesus, don't you do that to me. <laughs> so I was, I was nearing 30, I was 38 and, um, when I had my last child. And of course they wanna do amniocentesis and all that. And I'm like, it's not gonna make a difference. So let's just, let's just roll with it. And um, Andrew was um, precious, but he cried all the time. He was so fussy. Um, every, t every time we got in the car, he was crying. Um, these sweet nursery workers, they were so nice. <laughs> they put up with him. And uh, I, I'm an educator, but I also was, was almost 40 years old, and I was tired. I should have seen that he had autism, but I didn't. He was my baby. Um, I thought maybe he's not talking because the girls are talking for him, or I was just tired. Uh, some of the signs uh, when I started looking were that he would, in, in, he would line up his CDs, and, like he was supposed to be in bed, and he would line up his CDs, he would line up his cars. Um, when I went to pick him up at church, he would be standing on the table, and everybody was fine with that because he wasn't screaming. And I was like, <laughs> why is my child on the table? <laughs> but the kicker was, when Amanda and Mark Harmon got a baby from China, she came here knowing no English. Six, six months later, I go to pick up Andrew, Drew at that time, and she goes, Drew, your mommy's here. And I thought, she speaks better English than he does. Mm. So I had to take off my mommy eyes and put on my, let's be real. Mm. And so um, we started on our journey of autism. Um, and when you get a diagnosis, it's, it's like a death of a dream. Mm but God gives you a new dream. And um, he has been a joy. I, ne I never want, I, I didn't know if he would ever understand concepts like heaven and hell, salvation and sin, but he does. And he prayed to receive Christ and he's been baptized and he loves, and if you were in the second service, you see him up there like this. Um, he, he is a free worshiper. He is, he loves Jesus and I, that is so sweet and I know that God has big plans for him. Um, we've got some of his teachers here who are such a part of his story. And Jenny Kerr, she dealt with him before we had a diagnosis and loved on him and met his needs. And he, um, he teaches me, I can be very judgmental. You know, you're like in the grocery store and like, why can't that woman take care of her child? But then it was me and, and yeah. You know, so I can relate to so many women on so many levels. If you've lost a child, I've been there. If you have a child that's out of control, I've been there. If you have parents who've been divorced, I've been there. If you've had open heart surgery, I've been there. That's for another day. <laughs> she did. She had open yeah. heart surgery. Yeah, that's how they took care of the heart thing. Um, yeah, so we're hearing about deaf parents. Yep. This gift of this voice that you have that your parents won't, wouldn't hear. Right. Um, the loss of a baby, open heart surgery, a child with an autism diagnosis. Yeah. What do you do when it all, it's a lot, when mm -hmm. it all feels really, really hard? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I watch you mm -hmm. and you've, you've got it together. You said, I'm not hysterical. Right, <laughs> I, right. The police, I've never seen you yeah, lose it. Yeah, no. Um, I, I just have to lean into Jesus. You know, um, Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And if I can just keep my eyes on him, then all the other stuff 
fades away. And he has a heavenly, bigger perspective than I do. So if I just cling to him, I, I read my Bible, I pray, um, I get with sisters who um, encourage me, and we do this thing together. It's just one day at a time. Yeah, one minute at a time. One, yeah, minutely. Um, you got to go to Uganda last year. I did. On a really exciting trip. With and you're coming with me this I summer. Am. Look, Yay. there they are. Oh, when Uganda goes. There's my sisters. Um, so, what what was that like? You mm. were the experience, the yeah. people, yeah. their suffering. Yeah, we where we went was to the refugee camps uh, in northern Uganda, and the South Sudanese are leaving their war-torn homes, the Congolese are getting there. I mean, there's so many groups there. And what I saw was a church that was alive mm. and on mission and on fire. And they, their lives are so stripped down. Their food comes from the government. They get their beans and their rice. It does not last all month. Um, their housing is, you know, what it is. It's a tent or a UN tarp, and um, they have joy. And they, they know what's, what's what. They know what's important. They keep the main thing the main thing. And so uh, we were tasked with going from hut to hut, sharing the gospel. We ended up with an impromptu children's ministry. We um, shared the go um, trained the women. They are hungry. We complain when it rains, but they walked in the mud in the rain to get to church. And I was so chastised, so... Uh, I just, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. I just, I just, I look at myself and go, I, when I get in the shower, I thank God for that shower. Mm -hmm. um, we are so spoiled and um, I don't want to be selfish. I want to share Jesus. I don't care what people say about me. And I've finally gotten to that point where I, I want to do what God tells me to do the way he tells me to do it, whether it's popular or not, because I really just have an audience of one. So, yeah, yeah. Um, believers talk a lot about how God's word is living and breathing and... <clears throat> Um, it's alive, and somebody that is not a believer, that might not make sense when right. they hear that. Right. But what, what's that mean to you? Well, God's Word is full of people just like me and like you. You know, He tells us about their failures, and so when He reaches into their lives with love, and I read about that, then that helps me know that He's going to do the same for me. Mm -hmm. um, there's a verse in there for every pain and sorrow and suffering that we have because Jesus walked this earth and suffered. And suffered. For us. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, we ask this every time. How are you like the woman at the well that went to the well at the hottest part of the day so nobody would see her yeah. and Jesus met her there and knew all of her junk yeah. and covered her in grace? Well, I knew that being good wasn't <clears throat> good enough. Um, I did feel a lot of times like I wasn't enough. I wasn't pretty enough, skinny enough, white enough, black enough, whatever. And uh, I think that woman felt the same way. She didn't feel good enough. And Jesus met her at the well and said, I know and I love you. 
and you're beautiful just as you are and go and sin no more. And that's, that's, that's he's met me at the well many, many, many times. You told me that you felt like you'd sort of lived a life of always trying to blend mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And what do you, yeah. What do, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, everybody at New Year's has this, this word. What is your word? My word for last year was joy. I needed to cling to joy. And after seeing my Ugandan friends, my South Sudanese friends, I felt like my word needed to be fierce. Not, a, not abrasive, but fierce. Not afraid to share the gospel because eternity is at risk. Not afraid to wear my, my little afro and be free. Um, just not be afraid. Be all of who I am in Christ. We are free. And you said that about, I'm going to get emotional, um, of trying not to blend in and not be noticed, but it's impossible to not notice you. Um, there's just this light about her, and it shines so brightly, and it's, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are fierce. Go. I'm not scared of you. <laughs> you might be after traveling but with me. <laughs> you, I know. I can see it. I can see it when you sing, and I've, I've seen you sign, and I hear you share, and you've, you've got the armor of God on you, and you're, you're just clothed with it, ready well, to Well, but it's go. taken 50 years to get here, and it's taken suffering and knowing that he is enough. It's, it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm grateful for you. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful you said yes. Um, and just back to the back to the hair. What spiritual work have you seen in your life with just this um, fierce hair journey? <laughs> well, it's just it's an unintended corollary. Um, I do feel free um, from the expectations I had of myself of having to look like everybody else, um, and so that's going to carry over in the way I conduct my Christian walk. You know, I don't have to be like everybody else. Everybody doesn't have, we're strangers and pilgrims in this world, so let's go. Let's get it. Let's go, yeah. How many of you can identify with Alberta and her hair journey? That you have a something from childhood that just holds you back. Maybe something that seems silly and insignificant, and if you tried to explain it to others, they would think you were putting too much weight in it. If Alberta just got up in front of other people and said, my hair is a real struggle and it has emotionally affected me my whole life to the point that it has been an actual journey, maybe you do know immediately what she means, raising my hand here. But for some of you, it may be something that's not hair, but you you still have a thing. The journey really isn't about her hair, although it's almost cinematic how it mimics her internal growth. She has some childhood insecurities rooted in her hair. Yes, she has a very early insecurity there and feels like she needs to hide it. For some of us, it might be a different type of facade that we are hiding behind. But she hid it and tamed it and kept it managed and controlled. And what you can see here is that she did the same in her life and the way she conducted herself. She is a good girl. She is kind, and I don't mean this mockingly. Alberta simply is the kind of person that is just kind and loving and strong. She had trials and goals that she reached. God built her as a strong person, but she wasn't free yet. 
I mean, I bet you could ask her all along the way, are you happy? Do you have a good life? And my guess is that she would say yes. And she had a good life, but with bumps and tricky parts and the parts that built her and made her stronger, but good, especially in those early adult years. Then the real adulting hit, the pain and hurt that we are promised. As Christians, we don't get to miss out on the pain of the world just because we know and love Jesus. We are going to go through it. And Alberta went through it. She has been dealt far more than most of us are asked to cope with. She is one of the strongest, calmest, smartest, most collected people I know. And she was brought to her knees and broken and said she got to a place where she could not even pray. She didn't know what to say. The strongest of women was in a place of spiritual collapse. This is an okay thing to just fall apart, by the way. Coping and grieving are hard words and impossible tasks for a while. Some of the things that come at us are horrible and hard, and there is no human explanation for why and certainly no rationale for why me. Alberta was already a believer when all this hit. What a different turn the story might have taken if she wasn't walking with the Lord, embedded in the community of Christ. He carried her and he did the heavy lifting. Her sisters in Christ surrounded her with prayer and showed up at her home to help. So as Alberta grieved and healed and coped with all of these things, She didn't just stay strong and manage her emotions. She had to let go and see what else God had in store for her. Let God actually be in the driver's seat. Strength sounds like what you would need, but dependence of God and relying on Him and giving up trying to be what we think we are supposed to be might actually lead to something better than strength. We look around the room or social media and decide, this picture in my head is how I should look or act, or feel, or cope. But God may say, no, let those ideas go and see what I truly made you to be. I made you to be someone special, someone that sees the potential of those around them in spite of what the world says they are limited by. I need someone with the patience of Job. God says, I need a mom with a heart bursting with love for a very special child who is full of joy and rich emotions, but also has incredibly difficult days. I need a listening mom for him, one that has ears of patience and discernment. So she lets go of who she thinks she needs to be, and she listens for his guidance. Be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Exodus 14, 14. Alberta absolutely continues to be a very strong, kind, and patient woman. You only have to observe her for even a minute to know that. But her journey and letting go of control and trying to fit herself into the picture of what she thought she should be has led her to ultimately be the woman God wants her to be. She is more herself now than ever. And her hair journey? It's no coincidence that as she has let God redefine her strengths on the inside, that she has gained the confidence to outwardly wear the person he made her to be. And y'all, her hair is amazing.